we didn't want to do the full rush hour traffic into New York City from Boston on one drive to make an 11 a.m. session. So we did a, uh, an ISDN session with The Village in Washington, D.C., performed a few songs, and then we went over and did the Howard Stern wrap-up show okay. uh, with John Hine and Gary Delabate, Baba Booey. And um, then we did... Got, I think, two other interviews, and then we did Steve Earle's show on Outlaw Radio, and then we just did some liners from Pandora. It's just going around talking and talking. So and this is like, what, like six or seven at this point? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Which is a weird day for us. You know, it's a. Well, it's, I assume not every single day is six or seven not interviews. Not every day is would, a press day. Yeah. But our album came out two weeks ago, and this is our first time in New York since then. So uh, our publicist is keeping us busy. Has it been this way for the last couple of records, or does it get a little bit bigger every time? A lot of the, you know, a lot of the interviews that we do and the outlets that we talk to, uh, we'll repeat, we'll talk to them again sure. each record because they're big, you know, sort of stalwarts of our community. And so, like, you know, we inter- the, the director that we talked to at the village is Mary Sue Tui at Sirius, mm-hmm. uh, in down, she's based down in DC, but she's a big advocate and supporter, uh, within the Americana and folk music world. So we've, we've talked to her, I think, almost every time we've put out an album. Yeah, but then there's always some new stuff. I guess it was also, what, our third time on the wrap-up show? Mm-hmm. They like having us on the wrap-up show, which it's is a, always so weird because it's, there's it's an not interesting a more fit, different right? conversation. Yeah. What sorts of topics did you broach? Uh, really gross stuff yeah. because, the you, you know, you're talking about the episode that they aired that morning. I see. It's like a recap. and so I didn't one, listen to Howard this morning. What did I yeah, miss? Yeah, one of the segments was they like wanted to – it was called the germiest staffer, germiest. Okay. So they like swabbed everybody for bacteria to see who had the most bacteria. It was just really gross. Um, and so we talked about, you know, hygiene in like airport bathrooms and other weird things like that. And, you've, you know. It's always really fun and everybody's really funny, but the topic. We're bringing the folk music perspective <laughs> yeah. to the world of Howard Stern. What which is it, the folk well, we kn- music perspective on well, Germany's? To be honest, we are expert travelers. Yeah. You know, we know all about hotel rooms and airports and we spend way too much time uh, in public places. So we have, you know, we have a lot of experience with what they were talking about. If you had to venture a guess, we're who experts. would you say is the Germanist folk singer? The dreamy of <laughs> probably probably like a Woody Guthrie, right? Like, like somebody name, riding the rails. Or I don't no. want to name names. <laughs> I know, I know exactly. Don't who say, it is. don't say. Glenn who it is. Hansard. Why would you think that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just somebody should give Glenn Hansard a bar of soap for Christmas. Yeah. It sounds like you got the. We love you, Glenn. Wherever you are. It sounds like you got the touring thing down to the science at this point. At least, like you're you're smart enough to know when to. When to pause, you know, when to not yeah. necessarily like drive all night. Yes. Yeah. We have, we've been on the road about nine years. And so there's, there is just a lot of logistical stuff that you get pretty good at. I'm like, um, it's a weird thing, but I'm, I've become an expert on putting together a balanced and relatively healthy meal for myself at a truck stop. Are there any dietary constraints between the two of you? Because that, that is – Just finding food. Yeah. Just like real normal food, not gross stuff that's going to make you sick within two days. So you're Fruit, doing – vegetables. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, actual, actual healthy like real sustenance in your body. Yeah. You're getting a prosciutto sandwich earlier, which is pretty classic. Yeah. Once you get to New York City, it's, yeah. it's everywhere. You but... it up a little bit. So you're doing smaller venues this time out? Yeah. Yes, we. That's uh, usually like you know you usually kind of try to get bigger and bigger as you go yeah, on. Yeah, and that's what we've been doing. 
And we love it. And, you know, so we started out in where everyone starts out, in the sort of rock clubs and dive bars that are where you play your first shows for your, however long it takes you to get out of there. I assume a lot of open mics being folk guys. Actually, we did kind of skip over the open yeah. mic thing because we were both solo artists before we met each other. So that era for us was more of the, like, pay-to-play and open mic circuit around Oh, you skipped LA. it as a duo. Skipped it as a duo. Yeah. By the time we got together as a duo, there was enough going on that we could start going out as the opening band or or playing our own shows in real places, but, you know, the, the starting starting out places. And then we quicklier, more quickly, <laughs> quicklier, more quickly than expected, we got, were very fortunate and caught some good breaks and got to play in the theaters and concert halls that we sort of looked forward to playing in and spent the last few years playing in, you know, the town hall in yeah. New York. And we played a show at the 92Y in New York and just those types of venues all over the country and Canada. And... um one of the, th the couple things happen. One is they're really, really much more controlled environments. And as beautiful as the sound is and as, as much gravitas as some of these rooms have, we started to realize like nothing really happens from night to night within the show that's different from mm. any other night. For the two of you. Yeah, like, you know, no, nobody's going to... for the audience. Yeah. It becomes yeah. a little sterile. Nobody drops their beer bottle. Yeah. The PA doesn't go out in the middle of the set. Like, all the stuff we wanted to stop happening, we realized, like, uh, some of that is what gives the show its memorableness and gives it life. Um, and then the other thing that happens is the tickets have to get more expensive. And so we re we realized we hadn't played a show in, like, four years that were you, where you could get a ticket for less than about 40 bucks. And so we wanted, with this album, it's the There's first... There's a lot of people that... Well, can't come to a show for less than $40, but also reasonably wouldn't want to come to a show for less right. than $40. And it's important that the people that value our music that are in that in that uh, category, it dawned on us that it's important that we don't exclude them. Yeah. Um, so for this album, this is the first album we've made in six years where we weren't, we did not have a record deal, so we could just do whatever we wanted. We made it with just the two of us in a room, made it ourselves, sort of a self-release in partnership with this great company called 30 Tigers, and we decided to go back and play a bunch of the rooms that we started out in and keep all the tickets to 15, you know, 14, 15, 16 bucks, uh, which hopefully, hopefully makes it more accessible to really what it is, is like, diehard music fans mm -hmm. that are going to two, three, four concerts a month and are budgeting it that way. And we've just been having an amazing time because different stuff happens each show. And the people that are coming to the show are our biggest fans. They've been our fans for the longest. They know the words to our songs better than we do. And, uh, and they're just real music fans. And these are the, the, you know, these little clubs are the places where the people around the country that are the real diehard music fans, that's where they go to see music. Why was this your first record in a while without a label? We just finished our record deal. We signed okay. a three album deal with Anti Records six years ago and we made the three records. And when it was done, we wanted to to do one by ourselves before thinking about getting back into another deal with anybody. From the standpoint of just sort of seeing what it's like to be on that side of things? We wanted to get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy. We yeah. wanted to not overthink it. We wanted to just do whatever we wanted to do at every step of the way. And also, frankly, uh, financially, we have two albums that we made before our record deal that we just own outright. And as streaming becomes a bigger and bigger force, the revenue that mm -hmm. we generate from those is like is growing and is significant for us at this point. And so we wanted to have another album in our catalog that we owned and controlled 
controlled. You know, Anti was great creatively. They didn't tell us what we could and couldn't do. But we really wanted to do whatever the hell we wanted to do, market from a marketing, strategic, and artistic perspective, and we wanted to own it. It sounds, though, that there's the expectation that you're going to go back to a label for the next one or at least for future ones. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. I fit, you know, like like every other area in life, there's some um, there's something to the idea of not only just getting on with it, but doing the work that's in front of you and not overthinking it, uh, following where your intuition intuition leaves you, and, and following where your inspiration leaves you. Uh, and there was, like Joey said, there was a great partnership with Anti. At the same time, it's not them specifically, but any relationship between an artist and a label or a big media company comes with it so much bureaucracy and it slows things down and and specifically in our pursuit to and they're even a small super artist friendly indie label it's not but so specifically in pursuit of trying to rediscover what the personal connection is with our fan base i think it's really important for us to have stripped away some of the other bureaucratic elements that maybe would keep us from figuring out exactly what that is and uh, but there's no telling what the future holds. I, yeah. I know from this experience, I want to maintain what that close connection is with our audience and and not do anything to jeopardize that. And so I think any options on the table going forward, if we're being, you know, responsible adults and trying to ride through the choppy waters of what it is being a folk musician in 2019. <laughs> what What is it being a folk musician in 2019? What does that entail? Lots of beards and B.O. Yeah. <laughs> the upside of it, as, as you were alluding to earlier, is that there's a pretty tight-knit community, right? You know, everybody sort of, it sounds like everybody kind of knows each other. There's a reasonable amount of support built in. So that's the good part. But Yeah, absolutely. You know, everybody's got to find their people. Yeah. We've got, a, you know, the, and we have been very fortunate to find a great community of sort of like-minded, not just musicians, but the people that work in this little niche of our of our music world, which I guess is encompassed by terms like Americana or folk. Uh, you know, anyway, the Grammy categories are called Americana mm-hmm. and folk. And you've been nominated for both, right? Uh, we've been nominated in the folk categories. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or I guess the folk and then American roots. So yeah, and we, we host every year now. We host the Americana Awards ceremony, where the Americana Music Association gives out its annual awards. And we've the last two years we've been the hosts of that. That's been really fun. And yeah, there's just there's a great um, community of so like I say musicians, but then like booking agents and festival organizers and labels and everybody working in and around this community to to bring to life this music that we all seem to value and which is forward-looking, I think, but really rooted in tradition and really rooted in, you know, its its own lineage and, and make a, a sort of healthy enough ecosystem around it where everybody can do it for a living. You know, you said finding your people. I, I usually, when I talk to people on the show, they call it like finding your group of weirdos. You yeah. Know? You know, especially if you're, you come from like a small town, it's it's often, you know, until like college or later in life, you're like, oh, there they are there's other people out there like like me i was thinking i was thinking at the end of the um you know that blind melon video where like the b-girl runs out and everybody's wearing the b-girl outfit she found her weirdo when did that happen for each of you individually when did you realize that that you know that there there was this full community and it was one you wanted to be a part of uh i think it's been evolving for us but maybe that 
you know, the the community that we are most centered in currently that revolves around sort of Americana and folk stuff happening in Nashville and then also a sort of music and comedy together scene in Los Angeles centered around Largo, which yeah. is a venue there. That that started happening for us around 2012. Um, but you know, but it's a very natural thing. Even before that, Joey and I were both very involved in a scene that sort of sprang forth from a club called the Hotel Cafe. Yeah. That was also kind of the little water cooler for singer-songwriters in Los Angeles, which, you know, you like like we're talking about, when you seek out your peers, yeah. you're trying to find people that can relate to your experience and to network with and to figure out how, you know, this is like the Wild West. There's no manual on how to do it. Once you have a career and you look back, you realize not only was there not a manual, but not no person no person does it the same way. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And you it's, probably couldn't even replicate the thing you did. It's total madness. So it's just grasping for some kind of familiarity and some kind of understanding. And that that was the community in which Joey and I actually met was around that hotel cafe community. And then, as Joey mentioned, as our career developed and as we took it around the world, we started to find the other pockets that exist around the country mm-hmm. and around the world and, and have uh, tapped into those very significantly. I think you hit on a good point. And, you know, I think this is why a lot of people end up banging their heads against the wall and, you know, consider themselves failure. When you look toward another artist and you're trying to emulate that, like it's, it's impossible, right? It's impossible to have somebody somebody else's career. When you sort of hit certain goalposts in your life and you're not exactly where you want to be because you aren't where your heroes are, that's kind of what makes a lot of people, I think, quit over time. Yeah, that's probably right. You just have to find people to be around that are supportive enough of you and each other that, that you can just keep pushing forward no matter what phase you're at. Uh, how much banging of heads against walls was there when the two of you were doing this thing solo? It was entirely banging heads against walls. <laughs> yeah, a decade we of it. What wasn't working? I would say some combinations of the songs and the performances. Okay, so everything then? <laughs> it, was, it was our fault. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't well, ready. Probably, I'll speak from, you know, for yeah. me, I, I started late. I didn't write a song until I was 21, and I didn't really play guitar at that time I'm you know I'm, and I'm even from then until now I'm still only self-taught and I'm not a great guitar player I think I can do you know I I'm, can confirm that <laughs> I was talking to a stand-up comedian and it's very similar they're like oh yeah all the greats started when they were 15 who's figured out what they want to do at 21 and right. you're in an industry where, where it, starting at 21 feels late that's true and even earlier than that because we have been in a kind of like bluegrass adjacent world also and a lot of these bluegrass yeah. people started you know, in elementary school or before. And that's, a lot of them are prodigies, yeah. like legitimate child prodigy types. And they've never known a world where everybody around them wasn't looking at them as like the next great hope on the fiddle or the mandolin or whatever their instrument is. And we, neither of us had that experience at all. But I, And I think I got an even later start than Kenneth. So those first, those years until we met each other, uh, for me, it was really just like the very, the, you know, it was the first six, seven, eight years of, of, Figuring out who I was as an artist. What was my voice as a songwriter? What did I feel comfortable revealing about myself? And what perspective could I bring as a songwriter on the things that I cared about writing about? And and also just literally learning how to sing in tune and learning the relationships between different chords and songwriting tools and and tricks and shortcuts and just actually the mechanics of being a singer-songwriter because I didn't come up with it, like I said, or have any formal training. So just the the basics. Did either of you consider 
giving up at that point over those 10 years when it was just incredibly difficult and, you know, didn't feel like you were making enough ground? I did. Kenneth, yeah. Kenneth probably, I'll speak for you, but you <laughs> and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Ken, you probably feel more like faded into this world. It seems like, you know, well, even even from a young age, pretty much all you wanted to do was play music or something else creative. I don't know, make films or whatever. But, something uh, creative in a yeah, creative field, yeah. Yeah, which was not my my experience of my youth. Yeah, I never considered quitting but and I never felt faded to music I was I guess just going to fake it until I made it you know so when I was like 29 years old living with my parents there was never a thought like oh I should go get a real job it was always <laughs> did they ever try to put that thought in your head no to their credit they did not to their credit they didn't I but if something wasn't working I was always looking to the next thing yeah. and you know that phase that Joey describes of learning you know learning what it's all about and learning what you are and what you do mm. it's a it's a really sort of dark an ugly and difficult one that I think would drive people to quit. I mean, the uh, the most grim analogy I can think of it's like it's literally like throwing a baby in a pool, and um, and we were babies thrown in pools. That you mean as a t- technique to teach them to swim because babies can just swim. You don't mean killing babies right now, right? That's yeah, not what I we're mean, talking about here. Just to it's clarify, it's a very special Halloween episode. Yeah, <laughs> it's a spooky Halloween <laughs> analogy. No, I mean, I like, will say as a parent. I never tried that method yeah. with my kids. I'm terrified of it. Yeah. Okay, well, your parents did it to you. They let you go out there <laughs> yeah. and sing those trash songs. Maybe, maybe, and, maybe uh, and, <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah, and, maybe and it's like a baby bird. Maybe that's a nicer analogy, right? right no, it's not because it's <laughs> because it really is. Ex- find a different analogy. It really is existential, and yeah. it's like and right. I guess I'm. It's an it's an impure metaphor because <laughs> I've never known a baby that taught itself to swim and then swims. I'm just loud. saying, like I the bird the birds don't always fly after they fall out of the nest and when we've we sometimes are, they can't fly, fly and then they're like oh i gotta get a real job yeah, exactly. but it's really hard it's a really hard thing and i would not fault anybody who would be no. destroyed by that experience it's so difficult and frankly i feel lucky that all of those formative years happened in a time where it wasn't commonplace to upload every video and every mm. thought to the internet to be oh god consecrated in memoriam yeah. you know th- this is uh this Can is you imagine like every baseball player who right <laughs> turned out to be like an incredible racist when they were 15 and it, yeah. and it like pops up on twitter at some point but worse than that i'm um, not worse yeah. than that that's <laughs> awful <laughs> worse and, than racism go on right <laughs> i don't mean that I, but i mean for a singer and, uh, yeah. and and what it takes for you to present yourself publicly and the the amount of insecurity that courses around listen i'm a writer if i read something i wrote a week ago i feel bad about it yeah let alone something so i imagine, wrote 10 years ago imagine if every time somebody read yeah what you wrote this week or what you're writing about imagine if the, the place where they read that uh, a video would pop up or a, or a yeah. story would pop up but the first thing you wrote when you were 14 because you elected to upload it to the internet that i don't I just am so happy that in 2002 that wasn't what was going on. These kids that are doing that now are either so much more emotionally tough and evolved than 
I am, or they're complete idiots who will be ruined for all time. <laughs> so there was that 10-year period it took for the two of you, I guess, essentially to meet. I guess it's been more than 10 years at this point that you've been together? About 10, yeah. About 10? Okay. So that that's a good midway point. Do you think, had that not happened, had you not found another person who you could harmonize with, you know, have you now found another partner that you'd still be banging that head against that wall? Well, you know, right when we met, both of us were seeing the first signs of some marginal success. And I I can't imagine, it might not be worth imagining, but I can't imagine that it would have worked as well for me on my own as it did in this band. At the same time, I think that the, and I would argue this for Joey, I think there was all of that time spent was putting points on the board. Sure. And so something something would have happened. Don't quite know what it wouldn't have looked at, looked like. But also, you know, in that sense, we are constantly reminded that we have no idea what tomorrow is going to look like and we're constantly reminded that when we reflect on the last year that there's no way we could have predicted where it went or what it is or where you find yourself or where your music reaches or where your music yeah. pushes you. you know? And you can't control if you catch a little wave or spark of, of attention that that you can fan into flames of a career. You yeah. know, for us, that happened when we got together, and I think because we got together. And maybe maybe it would have happened uh, for either or both of us at some point in the, you know, in the next 10 years if we had never met. But it's it, it doesn't have that much to do with uh, how good you are or whether you make the right decisions or not. There's a lo- whole lot of luck involved, and there has been a whole lot of luck involved for, for us together. But the one thing I will say that I have really discovered about myself is that I I, I love collaborating, I, and I, I specifically love working in partnership with one other person. Was not something you knew prior to? No, I don't think it was. I don't think it was clear to me. And I had spent a long time just trying to be a solo artist. But I guess if I look back, there were always little inklings or or leanings or little gravity pulling me towards different uh, one-on-one collaborations with other people. And obviously, once Kenneth and I met, it um, it was kind of everything that maybe I had been looking for and mm. didn't realize that I was looking for. But I've learned in, in creative projects that I've done since forming the Milk Carton Kids together that I just really work better when there's specifically one other person there to bounce ideas off of, to generate ideas, to tell me an idea sucks, to tell me an idea is good if I'm not sure. You know, It is I, true. I, if there's one thing that's true, Joey is really incredible at letting somebody do all of the work and taking half of the credit. <laughs> it's it's an important so, skill. And there's historical precedent it's, for that. It's and so much easier. Just ask his wife. There's a certain amount of ego that it takes, I think, just to like get up on stage alone in the first place and to sing those songs. You two were approaching this project as these, you know, two different artists. Is there a sense of, I mean, you know, you joke about it to some degree, but is there a sense of competition between the two of you? And if so, I mean, is it is it healthy for the band? I don't think so. Not anymore. If there is, it's just what's built into human nature. Yeah. Other than that, I, I happen to think that we're our, each other's biggest cheerleader. And specifically over the last two, three years, Joey and I both spent time doing work outside, creative work outside of the band, me particularly producing records. Mm. And, and Joey's been, uh, was involved with a, with an NPR radio show as a, on a creative level. And, uh, on both of those fronts, I, 
can't think of a single time where there wasn't just encouragement going the other way. It's not competitive, but the thing where I feel like uh, it might be adjacent to that is the main person that I care about liking my songs is Kenneth. You know, and so if I'm, if I, whatever I'm doing, it matters most to me, obviously, because he has to like perform it. <laughs> but, you know, he, K- Kenneth is my, and it, you know, we, we, I think we're each other's biggest cheerleaders and also harshest, uh, constructive critics. So in that way, I feel like not competitive to write a better song than him, but competitive to write a song that lives up to his standards as well as my own. I should note that the two of you are very close, and like physically right now, but because you're crowded around the microphone. Do you find, though, that when you're not doing the music thing that you have to spend some time apart? We mostly spend our time apart. And that's healthy? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what I don't want to know what award his kid won. I mean, we can assume the kid wins no awards because I mean, I know the kid. You're gonna to have to trust me. He got but, an attendance award. Yeah, see, I don't care. I don't want to know. Perfect attendance for the month of October. That's great. He's great at showing up. He's always there. Okay, can't say that for dad, especially when I'm not. There you go. That was the Milk Garden Kids. Their latest is a self-released called The Only Ones. That came out in December. Thanks so much to them. Didn't have a lot of time, but I feel like we got a lot in. Thanks to uh, folks at Sirius Radio for giving us a space to record that in. Thanks to you, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr, that's rwellcast.tumblr.com. And that's about all I got for this week, so stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.